Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. All right. Good afternoon. Thank you for watching this virtual lecture event hosted by the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is the Graduate School of National Security and International Affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's worth of tuition cost. One can also audit such a course at a much less cost. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. This evening, we will be hearing from Mr. Jason Atwell. Mr. Atwell is a specialist master and manager with Deloitte's government and public sector cyber risk advisory practice and an intelligence officer in the US Army Reserve. Over the last few years, he has served as a senior advisor to the CIOs of the US House of Representatives, the Department of Health and Human Services, and the National Institutes of Health, helping to navigate the increasingly complex cyber threat environment. During his career, he has been a key member of military and civilian staffs, conducting civil military operations in Baghdad, solving complex geospatial problems for the DIA, and working to counter foreign intelligence and influence operations at the US Department of State. His education includes a master's degree in English literature from American University and a fellowship in cyber leadership from Yale. He is also a graduate of both the U.S. Army Intelligence School and John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center and completed coursework at the National Intelligence University. Mr. Atwell, welcome. The floor is yours. Thank you, and uh, thanks to everybody for attending this, both uh, here on Zoom and on Facebook. Um, the idea behind this is this presentation is I'm just going to run through some, some concepts, introduce some scenarios, some current events, um, and some of the different dynamics that are involved. Not going to try to pretend that I have answers to all these or that I've solved any of these problems, but more so just to illustrate how complex this environment's become, how many different uh, forces are at work here, um, and how it's very important that all these professionals and bureaucracies and organizations that are uh, at work in the three different fields that I'm going to talk about start to acknowledge the way that they interact and interplay with one another. Uh, so without too much more on that, I'll go ahead and, and get into uh, my slides here. Um, all right, so um, again, I'm gonna talk about cyber intelligence and information today. Um, for a lot of people, Hopefully, the overlap in the way that those interplay with one another are obvious, but the idea, um, and the biggest thing I want to get across is that this has become kind of a pet peeve, pet project of mine, uh, trying to make sure that these different fields acknowledge one another, uh, begin to take one another into account when they do planning, when they conduct operations, when they form strategies. Uh, there's a lot of different bureaucratic um, stovepipes in DC when it comes to these different things. Um, and I think that's why you're starting to see more and more of this stuff in, in the media as far as a, a problem set that we're struggling to, to deal with. So what I'm gonna talk about in broad strokes uh, in terms of an agenda is what are the remaining boundaries, if there are even any at all in the global information environment. That is the um, 
the lines that exist or used to exist between information systems, infrastructure, information, um, and our own personal uh, thought processes and the ways we make decisions. Uh, also, uh, how do we effectively counter cyber-enabled activities? Cyber is increasingly part of pretty much everything we do. And so treating it like it's its own special topic, like it needs its own special professional uh, approach um, and pretending that other agencies don't necessarily you know, have the tools or the, um, the methods and the means that they would need to, to interact with the cyber environment uh, isn't doing us any favors. So you know, how can we solve some of these problems using our existing structures through better integration, better information sharing, et cetera? Um, and then finally, one of the other really difficult things that's coming out of this is, you know, when, when is there a critical mass or a tipping point when you have ongoing campaigns and confrontations, whether they be cyber intelligence or information uh, oriented? Uh, and by that, what I, I simply mean is that um, if, if any one of these things is being treated as being solely one or the other, at what point, if any, do we need to acknowledge that it's, it's left that initial avenue of approach to the environment? Is it as a cyber um, operation, once it starts collecting information, is that now intelligence? Once the intelligence is being used to disseminate means, or uh, as the means to disseminate information in the cyber environment, then that then affects the information environment. Um, you know, is, has that now become a new problem or just a problem that needs more resources? Um, and I think that more effectively answering those questions uh, will make a lot of these challenges more um, easier to, to navigate going forward. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about is all the different ways that cyber and reality bleed together. Uh, anybody that's you know up on popular culture knows that this isn't a new concept. Peter Singer have, have written extensively on this, uh, but we've got social media, virtual currency, uh, industrial control systems, and the Internet of Things, uh, and then finally information warfare and disinformation. Uh, these are all things that exist because cyber has become um, such a big part of our lives. Um, information wouldn't move as quickly if it weren't for the Internet and cyber networks. Um, things like virtual currency, virtually impossible without the modern internet. Industrial control systems have existed for a long time, but they weren't always networked in such a way that they can be accessed from anywhere in the world and also manipulated uh, and damaged to be used against us. And then information warfare is not a new concept either. Psychological operations, this stuff's been around for quite a while, um, but it's, it's sped up and magnified in, in the current global information environment. Uh, you know, the activities that we perform online have consequences in the real world and vice versa. Cyber, to me, is not a separate special thing anymore. It's pretty much just another um, aspect of the key terrain. It's, it can be used to approach um, intelligence assets. It can be used to steal, extract, infiltrate, or exfiltrate information. Uh, it can be used to rapidly disseminate uh, malign influence uh, to get disinformation and misinformation out there in the environment. Um, and then it trickles back and forth. It's almost like a tidal structure. Um, things that happen in one area can affect others um, and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, so it's very important, you know, if you're a cyber guy, you need to understand, you know, what are the different cyber functions that you're performing? You know, how do those affect the other 
uh, parts of your organization, your intelligence, you need to understand what the, you know, the cyber um, vulnerabilities that exist are, uh, and also the cyber opportunities that exist for you to collect information or to process it better. And if you're an IO, you definitely know um, that, you know, leaflets are, are, are not the way that you're going to get the most bang for your buck anymore. It's, it's all about, um, you know, fake news posts on Facebook, um, viral YouTube videos, things like that. That's how you inject yourself into the, the information flow. Um, I kind of already touched on this, but, you know, cyber activity that furthers other operations, uh, also not a, not a new thing. You can conduct reconnaissance online, which is useful later on uh, when you're conducting maybe human or technical exploitation. Uh, you can harass and intimidate your opponents. Also manipulate data that can have an economic impact. Um, there's been some famous instances of you know Twitter accounts being hijacked and it directly impacting the stock of a company. Uh, websites go down and it, it affects the, the economic outlook of different organizations. Um, this stuff, um, it, even though it's not the real world, it, it, it has a direct impact on the real world and our perceptions of it. Um, that can get into a very ethereal philosophic conversation. So I won't go too far into that unless anybody really wants to dig in on that. Um, but that's a, that's a thing now. Um, it's, this stuff isn't separate. Uh, if you think you're not interested in the internet, that doesn't mean that the internet doesn't have an interest in the things that you do day to day. Um, additionally, it creates a lot of interesting counterintelligence problems. Um, a lot of foreign adversaries, uh, and I'm speaking from a, a U.S. perspective, um, you know, the folks that they recruit to do cyber network exploitation, offensive cyber operations, um, they can be based in second and third locations outside of their own immediate control. So some of these folks, they, they use the information they collect during the day as, as an intelligence um, operation. They might use that later on to do day trading or to you know sell proprietary information on the black market. Um, when certain types of PII and PHI get stolen, um, you know, they might be of one interest to the Chinese Ministry of State Security, but those same pieces of information might be useful and lucrative on the black market or on the, on the, on the dark web to be sold for other purposes altogether. Um, and that's one of the ways that you see this, this environment has is, is got multiple layers to it. Um, yeah, I think I kind of covered that slide. I'm going to go into a few sort of examples that are meant to, I guess, <clears throat> maybe hopefully lead to some questions or some discussion. Um, also, ones that some people are very familiar with, but maybe they've only thought about them from one angle or another, or maybe they remember the story, but they don't realize the nuance of it. So, some of these are a little bit old, some of them are more recent. But uh, if anybody remembers this one, the, the CENTCOM Twitter account was compromised in and this is one of those areas where things get really tricky with the way the media covers this stuff, because you know they immediately start throwing out uh, words like hacked, et cetera. And anybody that works in cyber knows that you know a hack or a proper technical exploit is very different from um, you know a just a credential theft that results in access to an account. Um, Twitter is not the DoD network. Um, it's just where PAOs and public affairs officials, uh, you know, spread messaging and, and get word out and interact with the public. But if a hacktivist group 
um, hacks your uh, Twitter account or accesses your Twitter account, the headlines are going to read, you know, CENTCOM compromised, CENTCOM loses control of its account. Um, the general public might not realize that that's not an avenue into a DOD network. Um, additionally, to complicate this even further, um, you know, sometimes these groups aren't who they say they are. So just because somebody called the cyber caliphate, you know, hacks something, they may or may not have any actual affiliation with ISIS. It might be trolling. It might be done just to get media attention. It might be done as a false flag by another adversary. Um, just to garner media attention or to intimidate or harass their opponents. But it's very important if you work in any of these fields I'm discussing to know how this affects you, uh, whether you think things like this are worth defending against. Um, you know, does the PAO know how to leverage, um, you know, cyber assets, counter intel? Uh, do they, are they interacting in a broader information campaign plan so that when things like this happen, uh, they can be, um, mitigated, or uh, you know, can these these be more effectively defended against? Um, so that's my first example. Another example, um, you know, some of these uh, adversarial groups aren't particularly sophisticated, so they take advantage of the avenues that they have access to. Um, Iran's one of those that uses social media heavily. They don't have any particularly, in my opinion, sophisticated tool sets. Uh, they're not known for any custom malware or anything like that, but the Iranians are extremely clever in how they use the internet uh, otherwise to get access to information they need. As everyone knows, they're you know under heavy sanction regimes. They have issues with brain drain and a lot of their more talented folks leaving the country. So it, you know it's not something that they're they have any qualms about is you know going on Facebook, impersonating uh, government officials or academics or media and using that to social engineer folks into giving up information. Um, additionally, it benefits them because when, you know, an article like this comes out, they can immediately, you know, these headlines immediately have a, a chilling effect on, um, you know, expats who might have family back in Iran who don't want to run afoul of the regime. Uh, folks that work in different fields dealing with Iran might not, you know, they might be more careful on social media, which, is good for them, but it also means they might be less outspoken if they're criticizing the regime, et cetera. Um, it also attracts attention from folks who want to participate in this kind of activity as either activists or see it as a lucrative way to, you know, curry favor with the regime or, um, you know, benefit otherwise from stealing information. Uh, because again, a lot of times there's sort of a side deal with this where, you know, if you're helping Iran steal you know, nuclear technology that they might need for their program or getting a hold of pharmaceutical information or avionics or some of these other things that Iran has difficulty with imports and exports around. Um, you know, you might be allowed to keep some of the stuff you steal. You might be able to sell it on the secondary market. So, um, you know, this isn't just a cyber thing. Just because it happens on Facebook, is that, you know, does that make it cyber automatically? Um, Facebook's not a government network. It's a private third party enterprise, right? So you can't defend against that from a traditional cyber perspective. You know, you can't have your SOC monitor it, but they might need to have an awareness of how to handle a ticket on this issue when it comes in, especially if they're official, you know, government instances. Uh, additionally, a lot of intelligence organizations have a giant CI blind spot when it comes to, you know, protecting their folks when they're on their own time on their social media. Um, 
I'm not, again, this is one of those things where I don't pretend to have the answer to it because it's different for every agency. But uh, in my experience, it's one that gets ignored a little bit too much. Um, and then additionally, you know, these, the, the, the freedoms of the Western democracies from an IO perspective, obvi obviously can be used against us. So, you know, the information that spreads on Facebook, um, you know, our governments aren't necessarily going to go out there and, and lie and, and uh, you know, disseminate bad information, but they're also not doing a great job of countering, um, you know, foreign malign influence as it pops up on these platforms. So moving on from that one. Um, this is another famous thing that came up. This has happened off and on over the years. It, there was another big um, blow up of this back in uh, the 2015-2016 timeframe when uh, Ukraine, Syria, things like that were a big deal. Um, but at different times, Russian actors have engaged in some pretty pretty harsh harassment, um, you know, on social media, um, and they'll, or they'll use. Uh, the internet and social media as a form of reconnaissance to collect personal information for later use in other types of operations against, uh, you know, NATO allies. So again, is this a cyber problem because it's being done, uh, you know, on the internet through different types of reconnaissance and data collection? Is it an intelligence problem? Is it a personnel security problem? Um, it's definitely got an IO aspect because then we see articles like the one that's on the screen right now where, um, you know, this, again, this has a chilling effect. It, um, you know, if you're the further east you get into the former Warsaw Pact, you might be less and less likely to take a confrontational stance with the Russians if you're worried about, you know, the effect it might have on your family. Uh, you might not want to go into this kind of work. You might not want to be in the, in the military of, you know, one of these um, countries that patrols the, the Baltic and places like that. So, you know, and what do you do if, from a cyber perspective too, if, if um, somebody feels like their home machine has been compromised, well, you know, it's not part of your network. You're not equipped to defend it. And in some cases, you don't even have a legal right to take any action. Um, but is your organization postured in such a way that you're translating the best practices you use around the office to the way folks use the internet um, and social media and things like that at home? Um, one more, this is a very recent one. Um, you know, we, we've probably all seen the headlines these days about China and the increasingly confrontational stance we're in with them over coronavirus. It's worth noting that at the same time, their propaganda is busy talking about how uh, horribly we're handling the virus uh, and how well they are and the different aid and the, the knowledge that they're spreading around the world. At the same time, they're busy, you know, exploiting and infiltrating our medical supply chain, uh, looking at our in research institutes such as the NIH, the WHO, um, other organizations like that, academic institutions, to try to harvest whatever information they can. So if we're so bad at handling this, why do they want to know so much about how we're handling it? Um, additionally, you know, from a perspective, from the perspective of that article on the right from science, you know, again, it's this might be more of a, a human counter intel protection of uh, proprietary information problem set. But all those scientists also had network access. So what do we know about the way they use their e email accounts? What do we know about the controls that were in place to prevent uh, data exfiltration? Um, among the information that they 
you know, exchange with their Chinese colleagues while they were taking money from, from China, you know, was there stuff in there that'll be use of use later if they want to exploit uh, the network uh, on their own? Um, also, this undermines public confidence in these institutions when these kind of articles are showing up in the media. So I think I covered all three cyber intel and, and information angles there. Um, but, you know, if you're dealing with any one of these problems from one of those angles, it, it's important to keep in mind that there are aspects of that that affect other areas and, and they, they kind of compound themselves. And before you know it, this is a very difficult problem to deal with. Um, so hopefully that triggers some thought there. I'm now going to transition a little bit more into some of the, the concepts and doctrine and the things that I think are also very important to keep in mind uh, from that angle as well. Um, if anybody's worked in cyber, they're, they're familiar with the kill chain or maybe the how to disrupt uh, advanced persistent threats. Um, one thing that I, I find is kind of amazing to me is how often you'll you go into an organization and they'll have one of these models fully implemented in their SOC, but they will not acknowledge the fact that there are things that happened before this kill chain and after this kill chain, which might need to involve other parts of um, uh, the organization. So. You know, what happens before you see actual cyber reconnaissance is you might be seeing open source reconnaissance, physical reconnaissance of facilities, um, you know, things like old school dumpster diving and stuff like that. You know, where do they get those email addresses if they didn't find them online? Uh, the conference information, you know, that means that they've, uh, they've infiltrated a conference somewhere along the line. They might have collected business cards. So, you know, are your CI folks thinking about preventing cyber activity before it hits the kill chain. Um, and then additionally, when you get more into the exploitation and later phases along the kill chain, um, are you taking the time to understand what has happened on the network in terms of how it might manifest later in the information environment? What's going to be done with the information that was stolen? Um, what information, even just if they accessed it, um, can, can they use later? Um, and how can you get out in front of the messaging uh, from a public affairs perspective, you know, to communicate effectively about what activity you saw? Um, we all know that when there's major data breaches, private sector, government, et cetera, that stuff tends to make it in the news eventually. Even if it's a couple of years down the line, it does show up. And government agencies especially tend to give these blanket, you know, we don't talk about ongoing operations of this type or just deny that anything happened. Uh, which allows the enemy to immediately take control of that narrative because if they're posting a bunch of stuff online, um, you know, you look like you're lying when you say, well, no, they didn't take anything. You, when it would be a better thing to say that, look, they stole that information three years ago, it's stale, it no longer has any effect on the organization, or, you know, the information they stole was public anyway. So when they post it up on a propaganda website and brag about taking it, you know, they're really just showing that they don't have any technical capabilities. I think we should be a lot more proactive in the way we describe this kind of activity because, um, you know, they prey on the fact that the public doesn't understand some of this stuff very well, uh, but we're not doing a great job of better educating the public either. So they automatically have the initiative just because they're being more proactive in the messaging. Uh, that kind of leads me into the last part of that, that that I want to talk about is just incident response. Um, a lot of organizations have very intricate cyber incident response plans, but they they don't take into uh, consideration some of the other folks that might 
kill chain, you know, are your security folks involved, your physical security folks, your counter intel people, are senior executives being given the information they need throughout the um, cyber incident to make sure that they're prepared for the intelligence and information components of what might be going on on the network. Um, the headline that's there on the left of this slide, um, that that headline is, is horribly inaccurate. This incident just came up a, a month or so ago and um, some groups went on, on Pastebin and just hung up a bunch of hhs.gov, nih.gov and WHO email addresses and claimed that they had just stolen all these from these agencies. Um, when I, you know, I know for a fact that when those email addresses were analyzed, they were, uh, a lot of them were out of date. The passwords that were posted with them didn't meet the current complexity requirements that are in place at these agencies. So really what it was, was a massive doxing of stale information, but because all these agencies essentially gave a, we will not confirm or deny this activity response, the hacktivist groups that posted this stuff, um, their narrative essentially stood, which was that they stole all this stuff and the government did a horrible job of educating the public and their own senior executives as to how much of a threat this really wasn't. Um, they were too busy dealing with other problems uh, to deal with COVID-19. Um, also, it's very difficult to bother your incident response people to even help you respond to something that's not an incident from their perspective because it doesn't involve any kind of an active intrusion. Um, but if your incident response plans and SOPs don't take into account the fact that occasionally you're going to get thrown a curveball like this, then your, your, your plans aren't very good and your team's not equipped for success. Um, so that's, to me, a very important thing to think about um, because your cyber incident response is not just about engineering problems. It's not just about plugging holes in the firewall or cleaning up machines that have infections. It's also about keeping your own employees confident in the network and about making sure that the public has trust in the integrity of the information on government networks. Um, so that's it for that. Um, this is one that I won't dwell on too long, uh, but the maturity of cyberspace and the global of information environment is, is obviously very advanced at this point. This stuff isn't new, um, but you can see from the, the grayscale sort of old school PowerPoint graphic there that I stole from a, from a, from a military doctrine that I found online, um, you know, they, they've got that Venn diagram, but the information systems, you know, the, the overlaps to me here are a lot larger than they used to be. Um, also, all those different entities that are out there in the environmental cloud around the Venn diagram, well, they all conduct their operations on information systems now. You'd be a very, very hard pressed to find anything among those organizations that doesn't use computers. And I'm being at least mildly sarcastic there because everybody uses computers now. You can't be competitive in the global environment without being on them. Um, so, you know, are we really prepared and do we really understand the extent to which the information environment affects all those entities and the way they make decisions and the way they conduct operations? Um, I would argue that we clearly don't because of the, the mistakes and the pain we've been through in the last few years when some of this stuff goes uh, wrong. Um, and additionally, you know, 
it's very important that cyber stop thinking about itself as a cyber thing and not a thing that affects all of these other things. Uh, additionally, I think Intel, there's a massive blind spot in protecting the cyber components of our vulnerabilities in the way our adversaries are exploiting them. Um, you know, we're getting increasingly better and more aggressive at how we use cyber to collect intelligence and disrupt adversary operations, but we're still not doing a very good job of defending our own people and non-government infrastructure. Um, so yeah, I think that that's enough for that. Um, this one, just very briefly, I think a lot of our doctrine around how we do information operations is very, very tactically oriented. It's very short term. Um, we don't have these big grand sort of campaign plans that we would need to effectively counter Chinese messaging, for instance, which has multiple fronts, uh, multiple messages going simultaneously. They are very quick to jump in and exploit whatever the topic du jour is in the news media. Um, and it's very important too, to keep in mind, like it's become very popular, especially in DC to attribute uh, you know, one side or the other as being the ones that are the useful idiots when it comes to foreign influence. But uh, you, these adversaries, honestly, they, they don't really have a strong preference if you really study their doctrine as to, you know, who the president is or which party's in power. What's most important to them is that, you know, we're bickering with each other and we're not busy, uh, you know, dealing with the threat that they pose. And to me, a lot of that is evidence that we're being more tactical and operational when we do this stuff than being strategic and thinking long-term and how to better harden our, uh, our society and our infrastructure against this type. The last thing I'm, I'm going to throw up here, and this is not designed to, to help you or me even understand, but this was a graphic I was working on not too long ago, just trying to show all the different components that exist in this environment and how they interplay and how many different bureaucratic puzzle pieces have to go into this. This got so busy that I never ended up using it in the presentation that I was working on because it would take longer to explain than I, I could have possibly had. Um, but these are the things that I think, you know, could be useful thought exercises. And I'm not trying to pretend again that I'm, that I understand this better than anyone else. I think I may have thought about this more than, than most people. Um, but I think a lot of these agencies really haven't thought too hard about the roles they play and at which point in this sort of information life cycle, um, you know, they, they exist. I mean, some of these agencies have multiple entities doing multiple parts of the same mission as another agency that's doing it purely from one angle or another. And if that sentence sounded confusing, that's because this is a confusing thing to navigate sometimes. Um, and I've seen this firsthand when you've had some of these very aggressive foreign uh, campaigns is that you spend just as much time figuring out who's in charge of what and who has what information, uh, you know, and how we're going to lead the charge as you do actually dealing with the, the um, whatever activity is that's of concern. And then one last slide here, kind of like the last one, but just, you know, when you think about some of those scenarios that I described early on with the, the cyber or the information or the intelligence collection, you know, especially when you throw in a third party like this is happening on a, a private social media platform, which agency gets the lead on that? Um, you know, if, in some cases, even you don't even 
an agency doesn't even have the sort of rights or uh, responsibilities to defend their own employees when it comes to that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, is it is it a DHS thing? Is it domestic law enforcement? Is it foreign counter intel? Um, when it comes to I.O., is this a public education issue? Is this a foreign uh, countering foreign malign influence issue? Is this do we need to be more proactive with our own messaging through things like Voice of America or the other ways that we spread information around the world? Um, you know, does the DNI have a public education responsibility when part of the terrain that's being fought over is public opinion? Uh, or is that something that, you know, we're not prepared to accept from a civil liberties perspective and we'd rather leave it, you know, to civil society to sort out? Um, but those are the things that are starting to, to me, bubble up to the, to the top, um, you know, as you see more and more books written on this topic, as you see the media themselves grappling with, you know, what role do we play in this? You know, how do we maintain a healthy domestic discourse that doesn't also aid our enemies? Um, and again, from the U.S. perspective, that, you know, those are the problems that we're, we're trying to deal with. That's all the actual slide content I have. Um, so I got through that in about 30 minutes or so, uh, but hopefully there are some questions in, in the discussion. But I appreciate, even if you're not gonna ask any questions or that was all you just wanted to listen in, um, you know, thanks for your attention. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll cede it back to the moderator now so we can do hopefully some Q&A. Yeah, so um, we'll transition to a Q&A. So if you have a question for Mr. Atwell, please feel free to comment in the Q&A portal. Um, we did have one come in. Um, the question is, what are your thoughts on our national grid's vulner vulnerability to cyber EMP attack? And what protections measures can we realistically implement to mitigate that vulnerability? So I'm definitely not an expert on EMP. I mean, I'm aware of, of the concept. I know that there's a lot been a lot of discussion as to exactly how realistic of a threat that is. I know that's one of those things that... Um, you know, people do tend to, I, I've seen it dismissed as a, you know, a conspiracy theory or some, some crazy thing that's out there. Um, but I, I mean, I don't think that that's the way to deal with it. I also don't think that necessarily, you know, the, the sky is falling, scare the crap out of everybody technique doesn't work with anything. You, you find, even look at right, we're dealing with right now with public trust in the coronavirus, you know, the worst predictions don't come through. So now you got to deal with the extent to which people will listen to you in the future. Um, but, you know, EMP is one of those things that because we've become so reliant on cyber infrastructure, you know, how do we deal with, um, you know, how would we deal with it if we did have to make these quick decisions or counter foreign influence if we don't have the, the, the media life cycle that we have now, um, you know, vice versa, you know, would they take down our network if they know they then can't steal our information or they can't spread mis and disinformation? So, um, it, it's uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, my answer to that, the bottom line answer to that for me is just that it probably hasn't been thought about as much as it should. And I'm sure there's a lot of one agency thinking this is somebody else's problem or we've hardened our network. So, you know, there's no need for a whole of government solution to that. So uh, I tap dance around on that question a little bit, but that's, you know, in my opinion, it's just another one of those things that we probably don't know enough about how we would handle it 
to even have a have an answer to that from a whole of government perspective. And not to draw out my answer too long on that one, but that's one thing that is missing a lot with a lot of these things I'm talking about is the the lack of a whole of government approach that also leverages you know civil society and the private sector to deal with this in a in a creative way. We tend not to deal with this stuff until it's it's already become such a big problem that it's too late. So, but good question. I wish I knew. I don't know as much about EMPs um, as, as some, some other folks. Okay, we have another question here. Um, if there is a policy vacuum between Title 10 and Title 50 authorities, can a letter of marquee be utilized to empower an operator in the gray zone activities you discussed? Um, that's an interesting one, especially from a U.S. perspective, because of all the different you know laws and jurisdictions that are involved there. Um, I would actually, I think there's a strong argument to be made that that gray zone already is being kind of used in that way. When you look at different private sector entities that you know deal with APT research, because they've all got different names for the different APTs, um, they're already doing a lot of that themselves. Um, from I think what your question might be getting more at, though, is from an offensive perspective, the extent to which we allow different third parties to hack back at attackers and things like that. Um, I think a lot of that stuff goes on in the background that we never hear about. Um, you know, for every time we hear about somebody paying ransomware, you know, we don't always hear about what happened with some of the organizations that didn't pay and how they actually got their information back. Um, there's also been... Uh, you know, offshore hacker for hire type groups that are out there um, that, you know, the government doesn't necessarily cooperate with overtly. Um, but if you read enough of the right literature, you can read between the lines and see the extent to which there's some cooperation that goes on there. Um, a good example might be the way that law enforcement cooperates with some of these groups that deal with child pornography and things like that. Like they're, they don't necessarily issue them any definite, you know, certificate that gives them authority to do this stuff. But, um, you know, that's part of a healthy society is people are out there and they're, they'll, they'll report behaviors and things that they see online. Um, so I think that maybe we just need better laws around, um, you know, if you do, if you are, say, a, a, you know, a white hat or a gray hat hacker, um, you know, these bug bounty programs, things like that, you know, kind of opening up the door to allow folks to use their skills you know, to participate in that in a, in a proactive way. Um, so that that's how I would answer that one. I think, you know, again, just like everything else, the legal framework hasn't necessarily caught up to what's going on in the real world, but I think what you're describing is already kind of out there. Another question here. Do you find that the government entities extraditing contracts to non-government parties causes more of an adversarial risk? Um, I, I think this is my personal opinion, but I do think it does. I think our supply chain has gotten, and I, I, I say supply chain in the big broad perspective of not just um, literal physical supplies, but human capital, proprietary information, research, stuff like that. Um, you know, I think that we've, we've gotten so good at that stuff and it's gotten so global that there are so many um, um, uh, vulnerabilities there. Um, it, you'd be hard pressed to find a global corporation that the U.S. government does business with that doesn't have second or third party elements that are in countries that we don't get along with. Uh, this has hit the media a lot with you know Chinese electronics, Chinese aircraft parts, 
Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of vulnerabilities that are there. Um, additionally, from a cyber perspective, when you're doing business with those folks, um, you know, you're, you trust them with a certain level of, of access to your networks, um, even if it's just that they're able to send emails back and forth with attachments and things like that. So, you know, if they're conducting business on a network in a country where there's heavy government surveillance, you have to assume a certain level of, of, of what you're putting out there is getting read by your adversaries or read by your competitors in another place. And I'm also I'm amazed how frequently that's one of those we're just going to pretend it's not a thing because if we flip that rock over then we have to deal with what we find underneath. So a lot of companies very dishonestly act like because they don't see it happening it's not happening and those are not the same thing. So, uh, but good question. How would you recommend the U.S. attempt to build a cohesive long-term cyber defense strategy without simply handing the project to the military? Um, and that, that's a really good point because simply handing it to the military would not be as cohesive or long-term a strategy as it could be. The military is supposed to be, in some ways, even though they've changed the name of the Defense Department, um, you know, they they, they t we tend to ask them to be more aggressive and out front when in theory they should be more reactive and contingency based. Um, you know, we have all these massive government agencies that have titles like education and, you know, state, which does foreign policy, uh, commerce, treasury, you know, just looking at the names, you should look at the parts of the environment that they should be dealing with. But they're not always doing it in in a in as proactive as a way as they can. I think that, you know, they just had that big cyber solarium commission. Um, that, in my opinion, needed to be bigger and needed to think bigger. That was very technology oriented. Technology is just one piece of this. With without a more comprehensive approach to, you know, why is there a public trust problem? Uh, why do people believe? foreign influence and fake information and misinformation so readily? Why are we so quick to accuse the other political party of being, you know, in the hands of Russia or China, et cetera? Uh, we've gotten so far behind the curve on some of this stuff because, um, you know, we, we don't have as healthy of a civil society as we could have. And that's not to say that no other countries have that problem. It's just that because of the position that we Occupy in the global economy and the fact that we're at the center of the global information environment needs means that we're the biggest um, You know, we're the biggest spreader of information, but we're also the biggest target and sponge of information. So um, You know, I really think that it would take sort of a, you know, a, a, a executive National Security Council type coordinating body that can really knock heads together and force you know, through like a deputies meeting type um, forum, all these different agencies to really think hard about, you know, the, even things like procurement. Is it taking into account our needs uh, for protecting the supply chain, for protecting information? When we hire, to go back to the other question, like when we hire companies, are we making sure that they're not then immediately farming out to subcontractors things that we need to have protected. Um, you know, do we, so many security clearances in this town, 
there's still not enough cleared people to do some of the work that needs done. So then you end up with, you know, coding and in secondary type uh, functions that are being performed by, you know, out companies that outsource globally. Um, so that's a, that's a serious issue. So, you know, I wish I had the time and the energy to, you know, to write that massive document that needs to be written, but, you know, there needs to be sort of a, a whole of government approach to this that identifies clear lanes, um, you know, objectives is another thing. We don't always think about strategic level long-term objectives. We think very quickly about how do we win this thing now? You know, like how do we harden the grid against this thing? Or, um, you know, how do we get out a bulletin about this specific ransomware campaign? Things like that. But we don't think about the dynamics that make ransomware lucrative or, or that make it so that our adversaries continue to exploit those gray areas in our in our economy and our laws. So I think you're right to say that it, it's not a defense department thing. We need to think a lot bigger and how do we leverage all of our resources to, to address that. Okay, this is kind of a, a follow-up question that you may have hit on it a little bit with that answer, but do you think the U.S. could benefit from a new agency that focuses on cyber issues? I mean, again, this is one of those things where it's my personal opinion, but one of the problems we have right now is we have so many agencies that deal with cyber issues. Um, there was actually an article about a week or so ago where the NSA and the DHS kind of butted heads because they both put out bulletins on similar topics in the same week. And you had a lot of people going, well, why is the NSA, you know, publishing a cyber awareness bulletin to the domestic population when we have DHS elements that do the same thing? You know, CISA has become increasingly front and center. They've got their own logo now. They're holding conferences and things like that. So um, I think it's less about creating a new agency that combines, because you have to create some sort of a cyber only DHS, which pulls in all the cyber elements from all the other agencies, the same way DHS was supposed to pull in all the law enforcement and Homeland security agencies under one umbrella. And as anybody that knows anything about that knows um, that didn't solve all those problems either. We're still ironing that stuff out, you know, 20 years after 9-11. So um, I think it's more about becoming more efficient in, if anything, consolidating in the existing framework, uh, you know, the different cyber elements that we have, but also stopping thinking about cyber as being its own special separate element. And that, that's where I think a lot of these problems come from. Um, is that we don't realize that cyber is just another, it's another collection platform. It's another avenue of approach. It's another way that our adversaries can get at us. Um, they used to use newspapers. Now they use websites. They used to, um, you know, infiltrate universities. They still do that, but now they can do it more effectively and keep better tabs on what they're doing when they get there because cyber is, you know, part of everything now. So. I mean, good question, but I think uh, the framing of it is I would go the opposite way. I, I think we've already got enough bureaucracy. Great. Well, I think that's all the questions that we have for you today. Uh, I would just like to thank you for joining us today and all of you who tuned in here on Zoom and Facebook. If you're interested in attending other upcoming webinar events, supporting IWP or applying to one of our graduate programs, please go to iwp.edu. Again, that's iwp.edu. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Thanks. Atwell. Thank you.